0: Welcome to this episode in the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast series. Today our speaker is Anastasia Roper. She holds a PhD in Arthurian Literature from Bangor University, Gwynedd, an MA in English Literature from the University of Latvia. Anastasia is a lecturer at the Latvian Academy of Sport Education, Department of Management and Communication Science. She has presented at international conferences and published articles on medieval and modern Arthurian literature, aspects of the history of medieval Livonia, on medieval animal studies and on equestrian history. She has been one of the organisers with Timothy Dawson of sessions on medieval equestrian history at the International Medieval Congress Leeds. Since 2016, she is the author of Practical Horsemanship in Medieval Arthurian Romance published
1: by Trivante in 2019. Hello, my name is Anastasia Ropan, and today I'm going to speak about border making practices in Balthazar-Rusov's Chronicle of Livonia and Early Modern Met. In my study, I examine representations of the frontier on Early Modern Livonia, used in Balthazar-Rusov's Chronicle of Livonia. The Chronicle of Livonia, first printed in 1578, builds for its early part of the information found in Henry of Livonia's Chronicle, dated to the first half of the 13th century. The Chronicle shows the existence of different kinds of borders, those based on geographical features, especially lakes, rivers, ethnic and tribal borders, as well as religious and cultural borders. The latter are marked by the penetration of Catholic Christianity into the territory of Livonia from the 13th century onwards and later by the arrival of a different kinds of Christianity. The Orthodox Christianity, associated with Russian aggression and viewed by the local authors of German descent as a heresy. The Russian invaders, being even conflated with the Tartars, are represented as worse than the Tartars. Rousseff's description of Livonia can be compared to the information found on early modern maps, which are somewhat later than Rousseff's chronicle and dated to the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th century. While early maps tend to show clear-cut border lines, textual sources the Petrezianese with which authors such as Balthasar Russo approach the issue of borders. While Rousseff's geographic description of Livonia in the initial pages of the work uses geographic markers to outline the territory of Livonia, the subsequent narratives reflect the border in a state of becoming and instability. Rousseff highlights the fact that each of the early masters of the Livonian order had to conduct campaigns against the pagans, both among the local tribes in Lithuania, and when the threat of paganism was suppressed, the impending sinfulness of the local emerged and flourished, leading to various natural and political disasters, including the threat of Russians and Tartars. This way, the neatness of the cartographic sources representing the geographic border as an unbroken line is contradicted by the narratives, which show the border as fluid and vulnerable, ready to be broken, reestablished, and redrawn. Then, that authors feel about a chart in the border is present in the earliest sources from the Chronicle of Henry of Livonia to the later Rhymed Chronicle and well into Bartoslav Russov's Chronicle of Livonia. Thus, cartographic sources tend to represent fixed political borders, whereas early and contemporary texts show that political borders are inherently ambiguous. And the geographic, religious, cultural, ethnic, and linguistic characteristics impose additional borders which may either coincide with or differ from the political borders shown on the maps. Indeed, in her discussion of the notion of border from a philosophical perspective, Latvian scholar Maro Greenfield points out that borders can be not only spatial, dividing one space from another, geographic space, but also cultural, that is borders between different cultures. There are also borders between order and disorder, The ones providing a moral assessment of activities, the border between what's permitted and what is prohibited. Building on the writings of Waldenfels, (coughs) Greenfield affirms that, on the whole, the border concerns not only the material sphere, the world of things, but also economic, political, moral, legal, and religious spheres. In Livonian Chronicles, the medieval and early modern authors do not limit their representation of the shifting and often ambiguous. Frontier of Livonia to only one sphere. Instead, they, rep- they present a complex picture of various interconnected borders that may coincide, with or differ from one another, but which, in their interaction together, represent Livonia as a geographic, political, religious, and cultural entity. In 1577, balthazar Russo, pastor from Revel, completed the chronicle of Livonia. In the Chronicle he provides a full history of Livonia from its beginning in 1158, when merchants from Bremen entered the land to his own days. Relying in the early part on previous sources, he quickly goes through the conquest of the land and the forty-two masters of the Livonian order. The letter reads mostly as a list of warlike guys who came to Livonia to make war, collect as much booty from the heathen neighbors as possible, then retire. To the more pleasant and quiet whereabouts in Germany, unless they got killed or were quite old already and died in this unhospitable land. From 1549, when the 43rd master John Racke began his term, the chronicle is considered as primary source, gaining much in volume and, one may expect, in credibility. Interestingly, Rousseau plays the part of unreliable narrator, as some facts he mentioned could only be explained by his preaching zeal, but can hardly be taken at face value, as is the case with his description of the immorality, drinking and feasting, which, according to Rousseau is beyond all measure in the morning. Remarkably, horses have a special place in Russo's description of immoral and hidden practices engaged in by the local nobility, gentry and wealthy merchants. One particularly memorable episode is in the rules of description of noble weddings in Livonia, where horses are valued as a means of showing off their rider's wealth, skill, and virility. He writes that, quote, before the feasts, the guests divided into groups, the brides and the bridegrooms, exceedingly stately and magnificently rode on great and heavy war horses and fresh young horses. Which slept in prints under the riders, decorated with golden chains, feathers, and other ornaments, went out of the towns. Each decoration, which otherwise had no use, cost over nine measures of rye. First, the Russo notes how, Upon returning to the town, they all rode twice through the entire town and around the guildhall, where the bride, laden so heavily with gold pearls, gilded jewelry, and her high crown that she could barely stand on her feet, together with the other ladies, were watching the riders from the high stairs of the guild hall. At last, both groups would divide and gallop over all the town streets, displaying the knightly prowess with leaping and racing, end quote. Ruse of reference to knightly prowess is clearly mocking, as he describes this so-called knight, heroically drinking large quantities of ale, the ostentatious display of wealth, manifested in the ornaments with which the horses are strung, and the daredevil riding of the guests, receives proofs of supprobium in much the same way as the outfit of the bride, who is so decked out with golden jewels that she can hardly stand, and the revels of the guests, who excel drinking, ale, dancing, and singing indecent songs. For also, the lips and pranks of the horses are impractical and scandalous, And everything that is not practical must be obliterated as indecent and unbecoming. Yet his remarks indicate a culture where finery and manly behavior are intimately linked with risky riding displays of horsemanship. And uh, this is the first indicator of the border between morality and immorality, which is prominent in Rousseff's chronicle. Finally, for Rousseff, once the pagans are conquered, the worst enemy are the Russians, whom he describes as faithless. In the introduction to the Chronicle, Rousseau bemoans the plight of Livonia and explains that Livonia was given over to the Russians and the Tartars as a divine punishment for the sins of its inhabitants. Quote, all the world and all reasonable Christian folk know from old Livonian stories that the end of the old power and the change, such as the fall of the landlords, the plundering of castles and cities, is not the work of the Russians at all, but the punishment of the Almighty who has set the Russians as a weapon, end quote. Here Rousseff introduced another kind of border. The border between moral and immoral, the acceptable and the unacceptable, making the distinction between Christianity and heathendom or heresy ambiguous. Can a Christian be worse than a heathen or a heretic? What practices mark the end of Christianity, the border between Christian ethics and the world beyond the pale of salvation? As much a moralizer as a chronicler, Russo stresses that certain practices move Livonia outside of the borders of the Christian world, which leads to redrawing the borders. While Russo's description of political and cultural events in Livonia problematized the existence of various kinds of borders, early modern cartographic sources appear to create a less problematic vision of Livonian borders. Three maps of Livonia preserved at the Latvian National Library are dated from the 16th. Um, From the end of the 16th um, to the first quarter of the 17th century
0: Mm.
1: So slightly later than Rousseff's Chronicle however um, Despite clear-cut divisions um, of Livonia presented on maps it can be argued that this cartographic sources created at the time of civil unrest that followed through the 16th century, after the wars described by Russo, um, reveal a certain degree of anxiety about the integrity of Livonia as a political and cultural entity. This anxiety can be mitigated by drawing the borders in a visually remarkable way, by the strategy of erasing the neighboring countries and by presenting Livonia in more detailed way as terra cognita, distinct from the obscure land that surrounded. it. The map of Livonia by Rallardus Mercator lacks an exact day, but it was published in 1595 in Mercator's Atlas. The version preserved at the Latvian National Library is monochrome, according to the European entry for the map, um, quote, even though there are numerous inaccuracies in the depiction of coastal and inland geographic objects, Nevertheless, it is the most complete and accurate photographic depiction of Livonia at the end of the 16th century, quote. Although the borders marked um, on the map are somewhat inaccurate, it shows the Livonian border after the Livonian war described by Russov marking also two regions of the modern Republic uh, Kurzyman uh, and Zemgallen Despite some inaccuracies, especially concerning the shape of the coastline, the principal towns are marked with considerable precision. Thus overlaying Mercator's map over the modern map of Latvia we can identify not only Rigo, but also the cities of Vanspils, Windau and Wenden, which are very close on the modern map and on the historical one. Mercator's original monochrome map shows the border by a single narrow line, but the map included in um, Hondius's atlas, published in Amsterdam in um, 1619 and reprinted in 1628 marks the borders in color, using red for the Livonian border. The reprint of 1628 has the border marked in yellow, with the principal towns in red, and the woods colored in green. Remarkably, Livonia apparently has fewer large wooded areas as compared to Russia and Lithuania, Lithuania with the latter seeming to have most of its forested area clustered around the Livonian border. A similar approach is evident in the 1588 map attributed to John Portanteo and Abraham Ortelius, which, again, outlines the Livonian border with bold yellow lines. For the neighboring country of Russia, the space is filled with the text, with very few objects marked, apart from the wooded area. Interestingly, the sea space features a ship and a kind of sea monster which could perhaps be related to local legends or represent a projection of the viewers' expectations of this remote region. This map is also less precise in Mercators as it fails to show the regions of Coronia Simigalia, even though such important towns as Wenden and Dunneborg today are marked with considerable precision. In general, the maps show the borders are stable, fixed, whereas the borders understood in this study is the subject of redrawing and negotiation. A good example of redrawing the borders appears in Rousseff's description of the aggression on Livonia by Ivan the Terrible, who takes Narva, which causes the redrawing of borders between Livonia and Russia. Again, this section of redrawing the borders made by Rousseff at the beginning of the chronicle destabilizes them. Um, The impression given um, earlier, where Rousseau draws a verbal map of Livonia with fixed borders marked by inambiguous, um, immovable geographic markers, including um, rivers and lakes. First, he provides the special measurements. Quote. Livonia is nearly 120 miles long, counting from Narvot Memel. Its width is 40 miles, end quote, and outlines the territorial divisions within Livonia, naming principal towns and castles. She also indicates a paragraph to Livonia's neighbors, quote, In the east the land has a border with the Muscovites, in the south with the Lithuanians and the Prussians, in the west it is washed by the sea, and in the north, straight over the sea, is Finland, Here the minute attention with which Rufus Rousseau describes uh, the Livonian administrative and geographic landscape is contrasted with the rather sketchy mention of Livonia's neighbors, a strategy which is much the same um, as in Abraham Artelius' uh, 1616 map. The beginning of the Russian advance into Livonia takes place at the fortress of Narva, and geography plays a prominent part in the Russian success. After the Livonians promised $40,000 to buy peace with Russia, they realized all money has been spent in the recent war with Poland. Quote. Finally, after lingering long, the Livonian eminent people in Riga, Revel and Terbata, collected $16,000. As these cities were distant from one another, the money couldn't be got together at once. Over this time, the Russian army with good war weapons encircled Narva. As Narva in Livonia is close to the Russian border, only a small river, dividing Russia and Livonia, the Russians could shoot at Narva from the bank with stone shots and grenades, albeit with little success, end quote. The geography here turns against Livonia. The great space amongst the cities prevents the timely collection of money and the closeness of Narva to the Russian border, which it should have guarded, means that the fortress is the first victim of the Russian advance. While the Russians cannot take Narva by fire, they manage to enter the stronghold, due to divisions within it. Also, suggests Narva fell through treachery, introducing yet another kind of border, the border between loyalty and treachery. The taking of Narva means that the border, hitherto marked by a small river, becomes unclear, unmarked, hence ambiguous and even disturbing, because the lack of a clearly drawn border coincides with the advance of the Russian army into the unprotected Livonia, abandoned by its nobility, while those whose task is to protect and ensure the integrity of borders. As the Russians advance and take castle after castle, which are abandoned by the scared owners or holders, the border moves, and the reader senses as read that this movement foreshadows for the disappearance of Livonia. In the absence of a fixed border, the very existence of the land as a political, geographic, and cultural entity is threatened. To counteract the destabilizing effect of political uncertainty, verbal and pictorial maps, such as the verbal map drawn on the Livonian landscape of the 16th and 17th century maps reassure and inspire certainty in the existence and stability of borders. The colored maps also make Livonia visually distinct from its neighbors, and the choice of colors in this case can be significant. In addition to enhancing contrast and visibility, colors can provide more indicators to reading certain lands as better visible and possibly superior, or at least distinct in positive ways from their neighbors. The neighbouring countries which surround Livonia, but which don't fit completely, in spite of sense of being unfinished, whereas Livonia is represented as an entity, self sufficient, is le- definable and finite.
0: Hello again. I am here with Anastasia. Thank you so much for your paper found it really interesting, um, and especially the ways in which it raises problems between the idea of narratives and cartographic sources. Um, would you like to sort of explain why the problems arise with that a little bit before we go into maybe some questions?
1: Yeah, well, the problem is that, uh, of course, in a narrative, you don't have these straight lines. If we look at the earlier sources, uh, the Livonian Rhymed Chronicle it just uh, gives very vague directions about these tribes live in, in this land. These tribes live in another land. If you have a map, then you need to draw these borders. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rusov uh, at the beginning of uh, Livonian Chronicle he gives the geographic description of Livonia, where some of the borders they um, coincide with rivers, with uh, pictures of natural landscape. But um, in in other places, it's not very clear where the border lies. And of course, as you read first, you see this border being renegotiated all the time, Mm
0: -hmm. as
1: it was a time of uh, wars in Livonia. The Swedish came, and the Russians came, and the Polish uh, came, and it was very much in a flux. Um, I guess of changes. It's not clear, (laughs) but uh, it's. You see, this process of renegotiation, all the war with uh, Russia and the, with even the terrible started over the issue whether Livonia, there was a pretext that Livonia should be um, should pay tribute to Moscow. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it was based on the fact that some lands of the bishopric of uh, Terbata, um, um, they well, they were lying on the border with Russia and uh, sometimes the bishop were paying like nominal fee for these lands, mm-hmm. very small plots of lands, but already this raises this question. And it, let, it was a pretext which which was used for a very big war. Mm-hmm.
0: So in terms of paying tribute, that would be a, mainly a financial tribute or would there be a kind of a, a sort of, uh, a, a kind of acceptance? of was, uh, these lands were
1: used uh, to,
0: for beekeeping so it
1: right. would have been uh, the products uh, actually but okay. it was like it wasn't a huge amount of uh, money or product anyway but it was used to show that Livonia should all Livonia should pay tribute and um, that's what Rousseff says it's his uh, side of the question
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, in maps you would see borders as uh, unproblematic well, you have to draw the line there is no
0: possibility to renegotiate Um, one of the questions i'd like to ask you is that you mentioned that horses were used as a means to demonstrate wealth or skill or virility on those borders and i wondered if there are any records of training regimes or processes associated with this in livonia at this time that you're aware of well
1: for livonia we don't have this kind of uh, horsemanship manuals but um of course, the Livonian nobles uh, they would be familiar with the German culture where they have lots of manuals for horse training, was the kind of thing the nobility would do, and Russo mentioned that the better families of Livonia they would send their children uh, for a year of study in in Germany because oh. otherwise they would grow up useless. <laughs> yes, yeah, this uh, better children of nobles would know would be aware of uh, all the processes which were going on in Germany.
0: Uh, so so the kind of the tradition of dressage?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, so all these uh, manuals about dressage and the, all the implications going on there. And um, uh, of course, uh, in these manuals, you would see, uh, for example, different horse bits, which uh, sometimes are um, described regionally. Don't have regional bits for Livoni, but we have, I have seen illustrations of bits which are called Moscovite bits. Uh-huh. And that's the, the Turkish beach. So again, Livonia is this borderland. It's between Moscow and it's between Germany. So it, they would uh, engage in both traditions. Uh, and uh, in Russo it's not clear that there were any Russians, but uh, there were Russians living in Livonia. There were merchants. There were noble people. So Russow just wanted, prefers to skip it over. For him, yeah. all Russians are pagans, and uh, which is manifestly untrue. They're not pagans, they're schismatics, you can call them heretics, but
0: mm-hmm. they're Christians. <laughs> but it's interesting that it became this kind of melting pot of different cultures, sort of defying yeah. borders almost, and that Rousseau is kind of narrating and negotiating that through his chronicle. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned when you were discussing the maps um, about the different colors. Um, and they were quite bold primary colors. And I just wondered if there was any symbolism or was it just to do with the dyes that were available? Uh, Well,
1: I have seen yellow and red colors, so um, I'm not sure about symbolism. Actually, well, red later became the national flag of of Latvia. And uh, apparently the color of the flag goes back into um uh, very early time but i'm not sure it's it's that symbolic. Well, of course it's visible uh what these maps don't tend to show you have uh forests outside livonia especially on the russian border you know there, there are forests there are still lots of forests and uh, i guess the visibility is better if you next to green you use something red or yellow of course of course the contrast yeah I, I, i'm not sure about symbolism yet i <laughs> haven't looked at that question
0: might just be logistics but it's it's clearer yeah. um uh, you mentioned that russo is perhaps an unreliable narrator um and i wonder if you'd be able to expand on those kind of inconsistencies um yeah. saying it was almost as much a moralizer as a chronicler um so i just wondered if you could expand on that a little bit for me yeah
1: well for the early part of the chronicle it's uh, based on early chronicle sources like the chronicle of henry and livonia and he's just enumerating the grandmasters who came there, what they did, what happened. And it's like a very brief paragraph for it. And as it comes closer to his own time, he's describing the moors, the customs, and all the time he's saying that uh, in old Livonia, so Livonia before this wars, people were drinking, and the amounts of drinking is just impossible to believe. And he's saying like, oh yes, yeah, they did drink so much. Uh, they drink from morning till evening they could didn't export any barley because it was used all for brewing ale and the amounts he give uh 16 measures a year uh, if you know ale brewing process you don't need much barley to brew it you need a very small amount as mm-hmm. a starter so the amount of drink it would be like physically impossible you cannot consume as much liquid as he suggests and uh, it's clear that he is exaggerating but he's repeating these stereotypes all the time and about the fornication that was going on like the grandmasters were fornicating with uh, prostitutes and with married women all the time and, uh, and it's it's unbelievable and he wants us to believe that but um it's it's clear that he is exaggerating there are pages and pages devoted devoted to descriptions of this morse the description of the wedding where the bride cannot stand because of all the gold and precious uh, precious jewels she is wearing um, and um, the um, sort of um, expense that goes into hosting these weddings also for bourgeois people it's just impossible it's it's impossible Uh to believe but but he's saying that uh, of course he was a lutheran he thinks that these are these Catholic Moors, which were bad, which encourage this, um, all these unChristian, unChristian behaviors. And then the Russians are um, the flail of God, the punishment of God. God <laughs> sent us, uh, sent us pagans. He says, Tartars and pagans. So Russians are same as Tartars, apparently.
0: <laughs> so it's almost like the Russians are sent to sort of put right the excess of the culture that's there.
1: Yes. Yes. He's stressing that Livonia was very rich, that it was exporting uh, lots of grain, wheat and oats, but as he as I mentioned, didn't export any barley, it was all used for brewing ale. And uh, yeah, that kind of thing. But um Yeah, so there are uh, descriptions of historical events, of historical negotiations, which were taking place during the war. And then in between there are pages devoted to explaining how bad the moors were and how much people drank and everything that was going on, that they were not interested in God. He describing some festivals. And some of this information is very factual. Mm And just elaborating on how much they drank and the indecent songs that were sung
0: there. Unfortunately, it doesn't give any quotes from songs. I would love to read more about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he quite enjoyed placing criticism then.
1: Yes, yes. Well, that was uh, probably the purpose of his book. It's more more uh, of a pamphlet. Well, it's it's a chronicle because it gives all events, and apparently, he wants us to believe that it is these events which happened. And uh, well, we have no reason to say that his. Uh, He's changing anything, factually, but the interpretation he gives of the histories is very much influenced by his views, his religious mm-hmm. views. Uh-huh.
0: Um, you mentioned also that the the cartography expresses, expresses borders as kind of fixed politically, and then yeah. Rousseau's narrative suggests that they're undergoing negotiation. And what do you think, and, and I know we've touched a little bit on it before, but what do you think that sort of suggests about the differences between visual depiction and narratology through Chronicle? Yeah,
1: so it's, it's very hard to depict a, a fluctuating border on a map. It's impossible, mm-hmm. I guess, because uh, uh, these maps, so they show Livonia they need this clear border around the state. And uh, on the other hand, in textual media, it's very hard to depict a clear border unless you have natural features like rivers, lakes, mm-hmm. the borderline But uh, you cannot have these natural features everywhere, so you have to rely on uh, landmarks, on castles. But then it, it's kind of hard to see how hard to know how far the lands around the castles extended, and this could be this could be one of the um, pretexts for. Uh, for renegotiating the borders when you are not clear where the lands, where the border lies. And uh, of of course, all this process is happening. It's renegotiation. The maps don't reflect this uncertainty, although they were produced in the period where Livonia politically was uh, in a state of flux. There were successful invasions and uh, uh, the borders were renegotiated all the time.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So, in terms of production of maps, were, they, were maps pre- like produced and reproduced on a regular basis to kind of... Do you, do you have a record of, of maps being reproduced and renegotiated to reflect these changes, um, or are they just sort of at fixed intervals? Well, the problem is maps, they were produced not fully volume, they
1: were produced as part of these geographical atlases, so they uh, perpetuate, I think, one oh, model, Later, in the early 17th century, uh, Latvia, uh, Livonia was uh, under the Swedish rule. Uh, The Swedes actually commissioned very detailed maps of um, all the lands they held, and uh, also for topographical reasons. Well, their maps, they clearly show not just topography, they also show the borders of different states, and uh, they were for local use. And uh, oh. military political view. So this would reflect these changes. But the early maps they just show Livoni as an entity, which is very much frozen in time. Doesn't show the changes that were being made.
0: Interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm intrigued by you mention um, the when you're talking about the bridal ceremonies. You um, talked about the description of the indecent songs that we used and i wonder is rousseau condemning this kind of aggressive masculinity is that part of his condemnation do you think
1: yes it could be and it goes in hand with the fact uh, that this is very different from real masculinity because all they can do is drink, sing, dance, and like dancing non-stop all the time, drinking and singing. And um in this episode about uh bridal ceremonies, yeah, all the, the decent songs are sung in front of the bride as well, who is supposed to be innocent. Um, and um later when uh, this um uh, military aggression begins and uh, the one who has to master armies turns out that um, the noblemen living in the countryside. So the uh, lords of the small manors are utterly unprepared Uh because masculinity was just bragging about being male and they don't have appropriate armor and they have to master armies uh, against the the invaded Russians. They just send what he says, uh, like, Young uh, horse grooms and uh, like old uh, low paid servants there who are putting on rusty males and uh, who are not very good riders and they just come they go and they don't find any Russians so they return very victoriously home and that's a very different from uh from uh, this um, aggressive masculinity very spectacular masculinity you can see in the, the descriptions of of the feasts and bridal ceremonies, there are also descriptions of different like feasts. There is a local tradition of uh, the Count of May Fair, where, um, well, as the name suggests, it's in May, and they are shooting from crossbows and from bows into a bird. It's one of the contests. So apparently, it's like again showing some of, this, of some of these skills associated with masculinity, with warrior but uh i again uh, after that all they do is drink and sing <laughs>
0: <laughs> <It's a> sort <laughs> of it, celebration
1: perhaps <laughs> yes lots of celebration interesting this tradition was recently revived in riga um but let, less drinking i haven't noticed that much drinking it, it was it's like a cultural event in riga it's a cultural festival mm-hmm. the tradition didn't survive from the middle ages uh or from the 16th century but was revived some Ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Very successful. There are different contests. So it's it's done in the spirit, not historically, but in the spirit of this celebratory mode. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that like ten years ago it seemed an appropriate time for a revival of that tradition. I wonder what sort of cultural capital it talks to that. It's really really interesting that it's been revived. Yeah, well, I talked to one of the organizers,
1: and uh, I sent him the description. Also, okay, <laughs> he was very amused when he
0: saw <laughs> Reading and feeling it's a little bit familiar. Yes. Um, a final question: um, To what extent can you see the influence of commoners, for want of a better word? um the influence of the non-germanic elite in livonia were borders drawn as a sort of collaborative process with them or were they sort of imposed by this almost conquering elite okay well there is a difference between between uh, what russoff
1: tells us as a chronicler and between uh, what we know from other sources so for us when he mentions non-german there is this word for non-german people it's a the local population it doesn't make any ethnic differentiation. They're all non-Germans. So they are all uneducated. They are all, uh, un, uh, don't know much about Christianity. And, um, yeah, they were part of these uh, horse grooms who, who were riding in rusty armor. Um, and uh, so they they don't have much agency in his chronicle. We don't know much about them. So they're basically living in the countryside. They don't participate in cultural life. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, what do we know from other sources, from earlier chronicles, there were many tribes, ethnic tribes they were culturally distinct. Um, These cultural distinction the didn't survive today, um, mostly. But um, in the rhymed chronicle at the beginning. It's just a list of different tribes, all with their territory.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, one of these tribes, the Kuronians, they were recognized by the German uh, masters. They were given, um, they were given land and they were given uh, feudal rights. They survived as the 12th prince of uh, princess of mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: So they had very much agency. Their territory was separate, and you can also see it on maps that Curonia is a separate territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was even separate as the Duchy of Koronia um, it, 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 for a short while. It was even uh, an, an independent state, the Duchy of Koronia and it survived even in the Russian empire. The Duchy of Koronia was a territorial unit and it had uh, more rights than others. But um, yeah, so these 12 Koronian uh, princes, as they were called, they were not as grand as the name suggests, but they had separate rights. And um, it was a collaborative process. The reason why they were given these rights because they sided with the um, with that, uh, order very early on they became allies and uh, they became Christian. So
0: it's interesting that by allegiance you gain greater agency. And yes. that's kind of borders are kind of being blurred by, by that allegiance. That's really interesting.
1: Yes, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Well, since then, of course, the, these noble people they have left Latvia um, in the early 20th century after the revolution. Basically, it's very interesting because they have uh, immigrated to Scandinavia, and one of these uh, gronian princes uh, has um, uh, uh, has in his archives the original charter from the um, 13th century, I, I think. It um, wasn't a very spectacular chart. It was just a small piece of uh, parchment, but he, he has um, donated it to the local uh, museum in Kurzema Kurzema is a historical coronia. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting process how they're still in, in some way involved, although they don't live anywhere, anymore in Latvia, not on the territory of Livonia, but they still have, at least one of these families have kept their archives.
0: Uh-huh, and they still want that connection.
1: Yes, yes, and they have returned uh, this uh, charter.
0: That's excellent. Well, that's been really interesting. Thank you for being part of our podcast series. Thank you again for your your podcast, and we're really excited to be able to share that with people.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this our last podcast of the term. Join us next time and next term on the 3rd of May to continue the crossing borders, contesting boundaries dialogue. Until then, follow us at Dara Memsa on Twitter and on Facebook, where you'll also see our call for papers for the 15th annual Memsa conference and all of the details are there. Again, we're looking at crossing borders, contesting boundaries. So until our next podcast, we wish you good health and goodbye.